0: Can you survive for eight hours in misty acres? Well, let's find out with the Laura Bow Mysteries this week on the Upper Memory Block podcast.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join. Die.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 59 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host, Joe, back with you once again, as always, to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. Welcome, welcome, welcome! It's uh, it's November. It's early, mid, mid-November, I guess now. And uh, yeah, things have uh, most assuredly gotten colder around uh, around Toronto. So much to the fact, to the so much uh, basically to the point where uh, wife and I on Friday went and we bought some trainers for our bikes. So we brought our bikes down into the basement because uh, though we haven't gotten a ton of snow, it has kind of sprinkled a little bit of snow here and there, and um, that kind of to me means that uh, biking season is done. <laughs> so we brought those in and uh, we're gonna keep them in the basement in front of the TV and all that noise. Hopefully, uh, we won't have too much of this interstitial time. I'd rather that it just Full out snows becomes winter, so I can hit my uh, get my skis out and start uh, hitting the slopes. Because hey, I like summer because I get to do stuff outside, and I like the winter because I get to do stuff outside. Uh, the transitional seasons not <laughs> not quite as much fun, even though uh, I keep saying I want to hike and stuff, but uh, I never quite get around to it. But enough about all that. Uh, so we have a little bit of news in a way, and in a way we don't have news. So uh, let's let's get right to it. So because. Uh, I think two weeks ago, no, last week, uh, we hit the uh, $50 per show Patreon goal on on the on the show's Patreon campaign, which you can go uh, check out at patreon.com slash UMBCast. Uh, we hit that $50 goal, and the $50 goal was to uh, take the news segments out of the beginning of the show and roll them up into, uh, into their own kind of monthly uh, news roll-up podcast. So... I'm going to do that. Now, I just do want to mention one really, really big, really interesting piece of news that I'm going to talk about in more detail uh, probably in a week or two when I put out the news roll-up show, but uh, LucasArts games are now available on GOG, and that made me super, super, super excited, but uh, we're definitely going to talk more about that uh, in in the news roll-up show, so if you guys have anything you want to say, we got a, a few mentions of it in emails on this show, but if you guys want to talk about that. Drop me a line and uh, I'll read your comments or your voicemails. Send me voicemails in uh, that news roll-up show. So thank you for getting me over that $50 goal on the Patreon. Feel free if you haven't given yet. If you do want to, I'd greatly appreciate it. And if you don't, just keep enjoying the show. Keep telling people about the show. And that's all well and good. So on with things now. Quicker start to the show without the news. Uh, We got some emails. So our first email is from Father Beast. And he writes... I don't know if you're going to have a show about this, but I am excited. A while back, they had a contest on GOG, and to enter uh, for a chance to win, you had to put down what you thought should be the next big thing that GOG tries for. Since it was their, what, fifth anniversary? Something like that? um, Anyway, I put down that the most awesome thing they could do was to acquire the LucasArts slash LucasFilm back catalog. I had no idea anyone was listening. Admittedly. I was indeed thinking of X-Wing and TIE Fighter, but I was also thinking of Curse of Monkey Island, probably my favorite adventure game ever, and you can't buy it anywhere. GOG.com is being kind of cagey about this announcement, saying they have 20 plus games, but not limiting the number, and not saying when to expect them beyond a cryptic in the coming months. Uh, If it's an advertising gimmick, it worked, because I'm going to be watching GOG closely for quite a while. Father Beast. Father Beast. Well, thanks, Father Beast, and uh, as I just said, I'm also quite excited about this whole announcement. There's a whole bunch of LucasArts games that I'm I'm hoping for, and I'm not sure kind of what the process is. I don't know if they're holding back games. I don't know if, you know, they're just kind of working through getting X-Wing and TIE Fighter working kind of out of the box. Might have been a bit of a challenge, and all, you know, the other games that they had were kind of already, that they put out were kind of already somewhat uh, available on Steam, so all the stuff work was already done. So I imagine for additional games, they'd have to go out of their way to do a bit more work, though. I know Loom is available on Steam. The Dig is available on Steam. So who knows? Maybe it is just a marketing thing. Next, we have an email from Francisco. And Francisco writes, hiya, Joe. Still loving the UMB cast and big congrats on getting your first two Patreon milestones reached. That's first three now, friend. Francisco. Thanks a lot. Uh, wanted to email a response to you and Father Beast from the Starflight episode where he asked about other retro PC game podcasts. Uh, It doesn't fit the criteria exactly, but I would suggest three moves ahead from the Idle Thumbs network of shows. And the uh, URL for that is idlethumbs.net slash 3MA. Though they aren't retro-specific, covering new games and old, if you enjoy strategy games, PC, and sometimes board, it's a good in-depth show. Thanks for all you do, Joe, and hope uh, your marathon went slash will go well. Uh, the marathon did go well, thank you very much, and uh, I was tired at the end of it. Uh, so yeah, thanks, Francisco, and um, you know, as for another podcast that I recently found and I, I really enjoy that is somewhat retro game specific and somewhat not, it is actually the, uh, the Blue Cup Tools podcast. Uh, that's done by, uh, Francisco Gonzalez and Ben Chandler. And, uh, so Francisco and Ben are actually, uh, you know, game designers and, uh, producers and artists and, and all that stuff who, uh, who are pretty well known, I guess, in the AGS community. And they do work with, uh, Eye Games on like Blackwell and, and games like that. And, uh, Francisco actually just came out with a really cool, uh, adventure game called A Golden Wake, which, uh. You can check out on Steam and, I believe, at the Wajidai uh, website. And, uh, you know, it's basically just two friends who also happen to uh, occasionally work together. And, uh, you know, they just talk about game design, specifically uh, a lot of adventure game uh, design because they kind of work in the uh, retro-esque adventure game kind of AGS style. And, you know, they just get into cool discussions about, you know, things about gaming and, uh, you know, what games they're playing. And a lot of times they are playing kind of some older, uh, some older games and uh, just really, really, really interesting uh, discussions. So you can check them out. I think they're BCT underscore podcast on uh, on Twitter and uh, you can find them in iTunes and all that stuff. The Blue Cup Tools podcast. So that's another one that I thought of after I recorded the previous show. Really, really great. Check it out. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for
1: Overview.
0: Okay, time to get to it. This week, we are discussing the two games in the Laura Bow Mysteries series. That is, The Colonel's Bequest and The Dagger of Amon-Ra. Now, these two games were developed and published by Sierra Online. And uh, the first game, The Colonel's Bequest, released in the year 1989. So as we do, let's talk genre. Uh, It's been a while, but of course, we're back at adventure gaming. Uh, At this point, I hardly even have to say this anymore since we've covered so many adventures, but because I like the sound of my own voice, uh, I'm going to say it anyways. Uh, An adventure game puts you, the player, in control of one or more uh, protagonists. Early on in the game, you're generally given a quest either explicitly by another character or implicitly due to a situation that your character finds him or herself in. Now how this story evolves varies wildly from game to game. However, it's usually told through interactions with non-player characters, uh, events in the world, and other things like that. Now generally, these story points are separated by a wide variety, and let me say wide variety, of puzzles. Uh, Adventure game puzzles range anywhere from simple inventory item combinations to puzzles involving logic, things like riddles, math, Observation, uh, knowledge of history or knowledge of the the game world, investigation, and almost anything else you can think of. If you can think of a way to create some type of brain puzzle, it's probably been in an adventure game. So you kind of proceed through doing that stuff, collecting items, talking to people, and eventually all the puzzles are solved and uh, the game comes to some form of resolution, usually kind of a fulfillment of the quest you are issued at the beginning of the game. Uh, So that's adventure gaming in general. Let's talk Laura
1: Bow now. Prepare yourself for a spine-tingling 3D tale of terror. The master of adventure is now the master of suspense. From the creator of the King's Quest series, Roberta Williams brings you The Colonel's Bequest, Sierra's new murder mystery adventure. Welcome to Blood Bayou. The Roaring Twenties are well underway, and you, as Laura Bow, young college journalist, have been invited to an elegant evening of wine, dinner, and murder. Residing within this splendid southern plantation is an assortment of rather odd characters. One of them has a rather unnerving habit. <coughs> Who is the killer? Is it Jeeves the Solemn Butler? I know Gertrude I know. the I know. Greedy witch. If you don't watch your peas and juice, I am going to tell him all about it. Uh... Or perhaps the eccentric Colonel Dijon himself. Well, I was quite a blaze in my younger day. <coughs> <laughs> <laughs> oh la la, I can tell only, I can tell. Only the Shadow knows. But by using clues and deductive reasoning, you might solve this bizarre mystery and avoid being the next victim of <gasps> The Colonel's Bequest. Ooh, creepy.
0: So, since this is an adventure game, the setting and the story is of the utmost importance. So, it is the year 1925. Uh, We're in the midst of the roaring 20s, as you heard in the promo there. Uh, World War I is long over, and the Great Depression is still years away. So, as the intro begins, we are shown an image of an unsigned will. Uh, We can't read any of the details, but uh, we soon see a hand slide in from the bottom right and sign it. The signature reads, Colonel Henri A. Dijon. As the hand moves away, a bloody knife is stabbed into the will, dripping blood. We then roll into a very unique credit sequence where we're introduced to the game's characters, including you, Miss Laura Bowe. Now, Laura is a 20-year-old journalism student attending Tulane University in New Orleans. Uh, this is where we find ourselves kind of after this uh, credit sequence I was talking about. Uh, Laura is sitting on, the camp- on a campus bench reading a book under a tree. It's a beautiful day in New Orleans. Soon, her friend and fellow student Lillian Prune approaches. Now, Lillian is the definition of a 20s flapper. She's wearing a short dress, she's got short hair, and she has a very strong personality. Uh, she contrasts quite nicely and quite starkly to uh, Laura's more conservative traditional style. Lillian invites Laura to a family reunion at her Uncle Harvey's estate taking place that weekend. Laura agrees, and we then cut to two days later. Now it's night, and we're looking across the Louisiana bayou. Laura and Lillian are being conveyed across the water in a small boat by what we can only assume is one of the colonel's house staff. The two girls get out of the boat, and approach an old and decaying plantation house named Misty Acres. They approach the door, and it creaks open. Here we meet Jeeves, the butler. He informs us that uh, all the other guests have already arrived, and we should proceed to the dining room. We do so, and dinner begins. Now, as dinner progresses, uh, the colonel himself, Colonel Dijon, is uh, wheeled into the room by his attractive French maid, Fifi, Uh, This is where we start to find out some things. It turns out that the uh, colonel is quite rich, but he's not well. As he says, his end is near. Since he has no children of his own, he has decided to bequeath his millions to each of the family members sitting at the table. Now, Laura's excluded from this, of course, since she was kind of an unannounced plus one brought along by Lillian, most likely probably just to defy her family. Now, there's one caveat to this whole thing that the Colonel adds. Yes, his millions will be evenly distributed between all in attendance. However, if anyone should die before he himself does, their share will be redistributed among the rest of the survivors. Fifi then pushes the Colonel's wheelchair out of the room to the stunned silence of all the guests. As soon as the Colonel leaves, everyone immediately begins arguing as to why the others shouldn't have been included in their group until Lillian stands up in disgust and says she and Laura are going to retire to their room. Once there, act one of this eight-act story begins. A clock pops up on the screen telling us it's 7 p.m. This is the end of the somewhat lengthy but informative intro and where we begin the game. You are listening to the Upper Henry Block Podcast. Okay, so let's discuss gameplay. Rolling back a little bit to before the intro we just discussed, let's begin from the true beginning. Now, this is quite an immersive game, even from the copy protection screen. So, to even play the game, we have to do a little bit of sleuthing. A fingerprint is shown on the screen, uh, surrounded by a series of names, which we will soon be very familiar with. Now, to get in, we have to match the fingerprint to the person using the back of the map enclosed in the game box. So is this still annoying manual-based copy protection? Yes, it most assuredly is. Uh, But does it fit into the framework of the game world? Yeah, it it absolutely does. So once we're in, we start a new game. Again, here, we see where the kernel's bequest is somewhat unique in, shall we say, its framing. Uh, In the story section, I mentioned that there was a credit sequence which was unique, well this is why. So most adventure games put you into the game world, and they treat that game world as if it's real. Colonel's Bequest does do this once you get into the game itself, but uh, the world before that is presented within the framework of a stage play. So after the copy protection, the message, The curtain is about to go up. Please be seated. Appears on the screen. You're then asked if you've ever attended a performance of the Colonel's Bequest before. Now, if you say you have, you jump directly to the beginning of Act 1. Otherwise, you watch the intro we just discussed. Now, that's not unique in uh, in Sierra games of this time. Like, King's Quest V does the same thing if you want to skip the intro. But the fact that it's kind of framed as a play, I think, is quite unique. And so during the intro, we're introduced to the characters in the game. A close-up portrait of them appears in the lower half of the screen, and then they shrink down to their in-game sprite, and move up to what appears to be a traditional theater stage in the top half of the screen. Frankly, this is a pretty good time to start taking notes. So first, we're introduced to Colonel Henri Dijon, or Henri Dijon, however you want to call him, but he's French, so Henri Dijon. Uh, He's an old, balding, heavily mustachioed man with a very stern air about him. His rank is from his service in the Spanish-American War, which took place over three months, almost 30 years earlier in the year 1898. Uh, He's rich, reclusive, and eccentric. As we'll find out, he is the instigator of this whole situation. We then meet the house staff. Seely is an older black woman from New Orleans. Uh, She's the colonel's cook. Her parents were slaves on the plantation back before slavery was abolished in the United States in the 1860s. Fifi, is the colonel's very attractive and very stereotypical French maid. Uh, Her job is to serve the colonel, which she does in more ways than one, which we will also soon find out. Jeeves is the butler. Now He's stoic and generally hovers around serving drinks and making sure the house is running well. Next, we have the three other direct members of the Dijon family. Gertrude is uh, the old and snobby widow of the colonel's late brother. Rudolph, or Rudy, is Gertrude's son. He's dark-haired and slick, and uh, we quickly find out he's quite the womanizer. Gloria Swansong is Gertrude's daughter. She's a beautiful and seemingly sophisticated Hollywood actress, replete with all the drama and all the troubles that one would attribute to someone of her position and stature. We then have the two members of the Prune family. Ethel, who's our friend Lillian's alcoholic mother, uh, is also the Colonel's youngest sister. Following her, we have Lillian, who we've already discussed, and the reason uh, why we've been dragged into this whole thing. We then meet two of the colonel's friends and confidants. Uh, Clarence Sparrow is the colonel's attorney. Uh, We also soon find out that he and Gloria have had a little bit of a past. Uh, Dr. Wilbur C. Fields is the colonel's longtime physician. Finally, of course, we have Laura, 20-year-old Tulane journalism student and daughter of Detective John Bowe. So as I said, we're shown close-ups of these characters in addition to a reference of what their in-game sprite looks like. Now this is very helpful during the game. Uh, We've got a very long cast of characters here, uh, at least for a late 80s era adventure game. So why put so much time and effort into getting you to know these people before the game even starts? Well, this is yet another spot where this game diverges from what became the adventure game norm. While the Colonel's Bequest does have all the standard trappings of adventure games, like inventory, exploration, possible deaths, and of course puzzles, they are not the main focus of the game. The main focus here are these people, are the characters, their motivations, their interactions, information about them, everything like that. So we find ourselves alone in the guest room we share with Lillian. Act 1 has just begun, and it is 7pm. As we'll soon find out... The game takes place over the next eight hours, uh, with one act being equivalent to one hour. So, act one ranges from 7 to 8 p.m., act two from 8 to 9 p.m., and so on, until the final act at 2 a.m. Let's just say that Laura won't be getting a ton of sleep tonight. So, at this point, we've heard what the colonel's intention for the evening was, we've seen people argue at the table, and we've heard what what Lillian thinks of the whole situation. Uh, Now, Laura is basically left to her own devices. Uh, She thinks something's a little bit off about this whole situation, and wonders what her father, Detective John Bowe, would do in this particular situation. His voice then pops into her head and tells her the following. Honey, if things don't feel right, they probably aren't. Observe the situation closely, yet be unobtrusive. Explore your surroundings quietly and carefully. Try to question others without raising suspicion. Notice small details. Take lots of notes, and above all, be careful. Laura then goes to her suitcase and picks up her notebook and pencil. Now we can go explore the old plantation house. Uh, wandering around, we begin to meet people. Now, most of the guests see you as somewhat of an intruder, and uh, they're not very forthcoming. So we need to figure out a way to listen into other people's conversations without having them know that we're there. Well, let's back out into the hallway. So each floor of the mansion has a front hall and a back hall with four rooms off of each floor. In the middle of each set of rooms, there are, shall we say, noticeable items. The second floor boasts two armoirs. The first boasts a large grandfather clock and a mirror. Well, it turns out that these items hide secret passages to areas between the rooms, and each room contains a painting with somewhat stereotypical uh, false eyes that uh, Laura can use to look in on things. So after observing a conversation between the Colonel and Fifi, we find out that uh, Fifi is a lot more to the Colonel than simply a maid. Also, because she's not a member of the family, she hasn't been included in the list of people to get on all the Colonel's money. Uh, both of these things might be interesting to remember for later on. So, when interviewing characters directly, when she's not, you know, looking at them through a hole in the wall, uh, Laura has to think of appropriate things to ask via the text parser. So, being that this is 1989, this game is still parser-based. But, um, you know, by this time, I think, uh, you know, we're going to talk about it in more detail later. This is the uh, an early SCI game. Uh, The parser in these games had become quite advanced and and recognized quite a a wide range of inputs. Still, figuring out exactly what to ask and uh, how to interact with people and objects could still be quite tricky. It wasn't just click use and whatever you can do, you do. You had to figure out, you know, like ask person X about person Y, things like that. So you've observed the conversation between uh, the colonel and Fifi, and uh, once this conversation ends, the clock pops up and moves time forward from 7 p.m. to 7.15 p.m. So each 15-minute interval, each quarter hour, places all of the players in this mystery in different places and allows Laura to find whatever information is available in the house at that given time. So each time shift is triggered by, uh, by a specific plot element. So if you come across the time-shifting plot element, and uh, you know you missed some other less-than-critical item in that time frame, well, it's gone. Once you move the main story forward, you can't go back. So as Act 1 gives way to Act 2, the story picks up. One of the guests is found dead. Laura tries to tell people, but uh, the body quickly disappears, and no one except for Celia, the cook actually believes Laura when she says that someone was killed. Well, it looks like it's up to Laura to figure out who the murderer is. Suffice it to say that there will be more murders as the evening goes on, with opportunities for Laura herself to become the victim. Uh, the game unravels like a classic Agatha Christie mystery until you're faced with a choice at the end, resulting in what we can call either the good, or, you know, intended, or bad, and let's say alternate endings. Again, unlike most other Sierra adventures, the game doesn't have a true scoring system. Instead, at the end of the game, you get to review your notebook, which I don't actually think you can access during the game, you only get to see it at the end, but uh, you get to see kind of all the notes that Laura took through the game, and uh, this helps you to see if you've uncovered all of the items of information that are available throughout the, uh, the property. Doing so, and, and trust me, getting everything is very challenging without a walkthrough. You know, doing this will result in your being rated a super sleuth at the end of the game. There's kind of this uh, thermometer type uh, level with, I think, something like, uh, I think it's five or six different ratings of how sleuthy you've been. Uh, you can definitely complete the game without uncovering all, uh, all the facts. I think you can even finish it without figuring out who the murderer is uh, at the end of the day. You have to survive the story in order to get to the end more than uh, than resolve the issue. So the notes at the end will give you hints as to anything you've missed, and uh, you know keeping those in mind if you play through the game again, you can try and you know get more points if you will on your uh, on your subsequent playthroughs. Also, in addition to the main murder mystery, there's another subplot involving family history and mental illness, which you can also follow. And I actually found that that subplot pretty interesting too. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... All right, tech focus time. So the Colonel's bequest had some fairly simple system requirements. Uh, To run it, you basically needed an IBM or compatible CPU that ran at least eight megahertz, which uh, I believe puts us into 286 territory. Memory-wise, it expected at least 512K of RAM, and supported a wide variety of graphics formats with the top end being EGA at 320 by 200 with a depth of 16 colors, which I believe is four bit because two to the four is 16 if my math is right. So four bit color. The game shipped on four high density three and a half discs or I believe if uh, Wikipedia is to be believed 10 and a quarter floppies. So all that technical stuff uh, aside an easier And perhaps more interesting way to discuss the game's performance might be to talk about its engine. So the Colonel's Bequest was the ninth game to be developed on Sierra's new SCI, or Sierra Creative Interpreter, engine. The game was built using the first major version of that engine known as SCI Zero. Now I've discussed SCI in some detail, Probably back in the King's Quest episode, since uh, the King's Quest games were always the first to take advantage of new game engines. SCI replaced the now aging AGI engine, which debuted in 1984 using, uh, you know, with the original King's Quest. AGI was a great engine for its time and uh, allowed for many of the adventures we look back on today King's Quest, Space Quest, Larry, Police Quest, all those. However, by 1989, by 1988 even, it was definitely showing its age. Uh, It supported a graphics resolution of only 160 by 200. It only supported PC speaker sound. uh, And it contained only a procedural style scripting language. This means that common code snippets could not be reused. Uh, I think last time I discussed this, I used the example of a door. In AGI, each door in the game was treated as a unique item. Even if two doors were exactly the same, you had to define each of those doors as a separate piece of script. Now, it doesn't mean you couldn't copy-paste into somewhere else, but if you wanted to change something about those two doors, you had to go to two different places to change it. So door one, you know, could open and close, Uh, initially it would be locked, etc. This meant a lot of tedious and and repetitive coding, and as I said, if you want to change anything, you had to find all the places where that particular door was instantiated, and you'd have to go in and change each of those places. Really, really irritating. As as a programmer myself, I can... uh, attest to the fact that stuff like that is very annoying. (laughs) Now, SCI solved all this uh, in its basic form. The new engine supported EGA at 320 by 200 and 16 colors. Uh, It also introduced support for new music cards such as the AdLib and uh, various Roland devices. Now, from a control standpoint, the mouse was now included uh, as was the ability to make the text entry parser optional and leverage more of a point and click interface. Now, initially, this was used in uh, non-adventure games, like the Hoyle card games and stuff like that. But, uh, as we all know, eventually, uh, it would become kind of the primary means of uh, of controlling even adventure games. Now, the Colonel's Bequest, as I mentioned in the uh, gameplay section, still made heavy use of the parser and the arrow keys uh, for moving around. The mouse was relegated to controlling movements with pretty mixed results. The pathfinding with the mouse wasn't very good. Now, from a scripting perspective, Sci supported an object-oriented scripting language. Now, taking our door example further, this means that you could create a single door class and then instantiate many different instances of doors from it. So, let's say in your game, all doors had, you know, three properties: is open, is locked, and uh, you know, size. You could reuse that door code simply by creating a door with those three properties defined. So. So let's say you made is open equals false, is locked equal true, and size could be like two or something. This would make a closed and locked door with a size of two, and that size could you know mean something within the game. Maybe a door of size one was very small, a door of size two was medium size, and a door of size three was very large. So instead of rewriting your door code ten times for your ten doors, you'd write one line of code per door defining what kind of door it was. Now, This is very, very common. In fact, it's actually basically completely pedestrian in development these days. But at the time, it was it was quite the breakthrough, especially in in game scripting. So finally, from a technical perspective, as I like to do in this section, let's talk music, which is kind of funny because music in a way is more creative than technical. But hey, you know what? This is where I put this. So let's do it. Uh, the game's sound and music were composed by Ken Allen. Now, if you've been listening to the show, Ken's work is well known to you. Uh, he was hired at Sierra around this time, uh, after sending in a self-recorded demo he did on, uh, his home kind of, uh, MIDI setup, which, uh, admittedly was, uh, somewhat rudimentary using fairly rudimentary software and, uh, was kind of homegrown. I think there were car speakers attached to it and, uh, stuff like that. So he recorded, uh a little demo in a day called The Audition March, which uh, maybe I'll play on the show one of these days because it's pretty cool. Uh, As far as I can tell, The Colonel's Bequest appears to be the first game he worked on as a sound designer and composer at Sierra. I think he'd worked on a couple games before that, at least one before that, but uh, Colonel's Bequest was his first Sierra title. Now the game's music is very atmospheric and mixes original themes along with existing classical compositions translated into the MIDI format, and uh, you know all this music sounds really great at least coming across the MT32. Uh, the music in the game is a combination of eerie and suspenseful, but it also delves into some ragtime and Dixieland-style music that's you know reminiscent of New Orleans and the South and stuff like that. I mean there's there's some amazing sound work here even with kind of the rudimentary tools and the rudimentary sound capabilities they had at the time they were really able ken allen and you know the the guys of of his ilk were able really to milk those those limited devices for for all they could do You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Story. Okay, Dev Story time. So, The Colonel's Bequest was a game by Roberta Williams. As such, it is, of course, inexorably linked to the early days of Sierra, even though it came on kind of later in the company's life. Now, I won't spend tons of time on the early days of Sierra, since I've done that on countless occasions already, including the show where I focused on Sierra as a company. Uh, The one thing I will focus on though, probably because I won't ever do a show on it directly unless you guys really want me to, is uh, Mystery House. So Mystery House was uh, both the first game Roberta Williams designed and also the first game that Sierra, then known as Online Systems, published. Now how did this happen? Well, I mentioned this before, but Ken basically brought home a teletype terminal So he could work on uh, some accounting package that he was trying to build. And uh, rummaging through a catalog, he, and I believe Roberta as well, came across um, a game known as Colossal Cave Adventure. They acquired this game. They both played through it from start to finish. They loved it. They were in love with this text-based adventure game. So Roberta looked around for more games of the ilk of uh, Colossal Cave Adventure, but she couldn't find any. So she kind of said, you know what? I really like text adventure games. I really like adventure games. I like storytelling and this interactive form of fiction and whatever. So I want to make my own. Uh, However, once she started, she kind of started to think that the game would be more compelling if there were images attached to the descriptions. So with this idea, she created a whodunit story inspired by Agatha Christie's 1939 novel, And Then There Were None. Now, her game, which she called Mystery House, tells a fairly classical tale of a young character entering a Victorian mansion. Now, after going inside, your only choice is to find a way out by exploration. You come across seven other characters in the mansion, each with their own stories. Initially, you're tasked with finding a cache of jewels once you get into this house, but eventually, the other kind of characters in the house start to turn up dead. Now, you have to find out who is killing people so as not to end up dead yourself. Sound familiar? Maybe very similar to a certain game we've dis- been discussing for the past little while? Well, anyways, Mystery House sold incredibly well for its time and helped to launch Ken and Roberta into their positions in gaming history that you know we know them for today. Uh, after Mystery House, Roberta went on to write some more games, including the first four installments of the King's Quest series. Now, after King's Quest IV, The Perils of Rosella came out. Roberta felt it was time to change things up a little bit and have Sierra return to its roots. It was time to make another mystery game. So she returned to her readings of Agatha Christie and other authors of the genre and, uh, you know, tried to come up with something. So she decided her story would be set in the South during the Roaring Twenties and uh, brought on writer and designer Jacqueline Austin to do the bulk of uh, research work for the game. So Jacqueline spent quite a bit of time in New Orleans interviewing people from, you know, local historical societies and things like that to kind of get the setting, the people, and the action all period appropriate. In addition, she aided Roberta in coming up with designs, colors, and the overall look and feel of the game. As was mentioned, unlike the games Roberta had been working on until this point, This game had much less to do with puzzles and items and much, much more to do with characters. Roberta's goal was to not explicitly issue a quest as she had done before. I mean, you go look at King's Quest 1, the game starts, you walk to the king, the king says, find these things. It's kind of all very uh, clear. So instead of that, her goal was to tell an interactive story. According to her, she wanted the player to feel like an innocent thrust into a situation where people all around her are suddenly dying. You know, along the way, you figure out people's motivations, who's sleeping with who, and you know, generally, you just kind of move along with the story. I mean, even the name of the game was different in style than other Sierra adventures. You know, while all the other games explicitly contained the word quest, this game only nodded at the tradition by including quest as part of one of the words in the title. So instead of calling it something else, they called it the Colonel's B Quest, just to still have that little nod towards quest in there, which is why the title, a lot of people think the title's a little awkward, but eh, I think it's fine. So it was still a Sierra Quest game, just not quite in the way the others were. And what about the fact that we have a female protagonist in the game? Well, according to Rivera, she sort of pictured Laura Bowe as a Nancy Drew type. So it was really a given all along that the main character in this game would be female. And, um, you know, I sort of like Roberta's view on these things. Many people say, you know, she was pioneering as both a woman in the gaming industry and also for creating games with female leads, especially back in you know the 80s. She doesn't really think of it this way, or at least she didn't back when this game came out. Uh, According to her, at least in an interview that I kind of came across, uh, She says she simply just didn't let herself be constrained. She didn't force herself to make male protagonists because gaming was a male-dominated industry. Nor did she feature women just because she was a woman and she was trying to make a point. From her perspective, the main character was dictated by the story that she was trying to tell. Now, almost all the characters in the game were named after prominent figures of the 20s. Uh, Rudy was named after Rudolph Valentino, Dr. Fields was named after after uh, W.C. Fields, Gloria Swansong was named after actress Gloria Swanson, and even Laura Bowe herself was named after Clara Bowe, who was an actress who, in my research, I kind of found out was um, a woman that people say basically personified you know, the style and the attitude of the 20s. So the game released to relatively good reviews, though some reviewers did have problems with it. It was felt that while well, the game was very highly designed and very well produced, you know, all the the, the level of execution of everything was was very very high. Uh, the less puzzle driven style would probably disappoint more serious adventure gamers. Uh, it was also panned as being a bit slow-paced and repetitive, as, you know, you had to visit multiple locations in succession to kind of get things to happen to roll the game forward. Overall, though, the game was successful enough to warn a sequel, so the second Loribo game, The Dagger of Amon ra came out in the year 1992. This game, we find ourselves in New York, one year later in 1926. So Laura has graduated from Tulane and moved up to New York where she is now working for a prestigious newspaper. Her first assignment is to write a fluff story about a benefit uh, thrown by a local museum to celebrate their new Egyptian exhibit. Big whoop. However, as we may come to expect, uh, a murder occurs at the party. All the guests are locked in since apparently now they are all suspects. As the night progresses, more of the guests begin to turn up dead, and Laura once again must find out who the killer is or be killed herself. She is not very lucky in this regard. (laughs) So, The Dagger of Amun-Ra was primarily produced by Bruce Balfour, with Roberta taking on a creative consultant credit on the game. Now, maybe because of this, Dagger was a much more traditional adventure game in terms of gameplay. While there was still some character elements to the story, the bulk of the game reverted to the puzzle and inventory tropes that were well-established by 1992. Technically, the game was much more modern than uh, Colonel's Bequest, being done in SCI 1.1. This meant that we were into the realm of 256-color VGA graphics, and uh, this game released to good reviews, and many claimed it was a better game than Colonel's Bequest, since it stuck to more of the adventure formula. Eh, I don't know if I really agree with that statement.
1: You are listening to the
0: Block Podcast. So, what does the future hold for Laura Bow? Well, Dagger of Amun Ra was the final game in the short lived Laura Bow mystery series, and uh, we haven't heard anything about the rights for the games being sold to anyone, so that means one thing the rights are retained by Activision which means there is certainly a possibility we could get a new or even a reimagined Laura Bow game under Activision's new Sierra banner. Frankly, I think these days, a game like Colonel's Bequest could work much better. I mean, you know, Gone Home, for example, really does remind me of a game in this style. In fact, I'll even venture to say Colonel's Bequest and Dagger of Almond Ra remind me quite a bit of Gabriel Knight like kind you know these these mystery stories but you know something like gone home where really you're just walking around you're not really in any danger and you're just uncovering a story was I think sort of Roberta's intention when she was you know creating Colonel's bequest so and you know gone home was quite popular other games are coming out that are like it so you know I, I think the time is here so with that said where can we get these Laura bow games today well, There's nowhere that I know to get them digitally, legally, these days. Uh, Last I knew of them, they were packed into the King's Quest collection as bonus uh, material, and uh, they were also put in another series known as the Roberta Williams Anthology. However, even those collections aren't available digitally. I think the King's Quest games from GOG were pulled from this collection, but the collection itself isn't really available. Uh, You know, I'm sure you can find them on eBay without too much trouble. Otherwise, if you want to go all... Shady about it, you can hit the abandonware and and all of that, but you know let let's hope that uh, that we're going to see these games come out. All right, before we get to my verdict, as usual, we got a couple of emails. The first one is from Elima, and she writes, "Hello, Joe and fellow blockers. Thanks for reading my email in the previous episode. I think I've pinpointed exactly why I had trouble getting used to Gabriel Knight." It's mostly because he didn't fit my expectations. I expected a lovable rapscallion and got a lout. But uh, the more I think about it, the more it makes the game interesting. Anyhow, that just really goes to show that Gabriel Knight's Sins of the Fathers is truly a great game. Uh, because here I am, mulling things over and still thinking about the game, the characters, and the art, and the story weeks after having finished it. But on to the main topic, the Laura Bow series. I'm really glad you decided to cover this one, as it's one of the lesser-known Sierra series. I myself only played it about 10 years ago during my college years, uh, when the classes were lighter and the days would bleed into one another filled with gaming. I'm pretty sure I either borrowed the game from a friend or downloaded it off some abandonedware site which I won't name, don't want to get you in trouble. Hopefully it'll be available on GOG soon. I really loved the first game, The Colonel's Bequest, even though I'm not a huge fan of Murderer Mysteries. That's mostly because I'm usually clueless, and I'm not too proud to admit I used a walkthrough. I found the cast of characters fascinating, and although the graphics are definitely a product of the 80s, they were colorful and atmospheric. The story is very rich, and the Misty Acres Mansion is a perfect backdrop for a murder mystery with its bygone charm. It's in a state of disrepair, though. Watch out for falling objects. The Dagger of Amun-Ra, however, has a very different feel to it. It's still a murder mystery, but the atmosphere is very different and it didn't quite hit the high of the first game. While the city of New York is a fascinating place, it's just not the same as the gloomy, foreboding old mansion. I admit I found the game frustrating in places, and was really, really glad I had a walkthrough. I can safely say I would have never solved the game otherwise. As an adventure game enthusiast, I obviously really enjoyed these games and would recommend them. Looking forward to hear the story behind Laura Bow, Laura as well as your own opinion. Block on, Elima slash Emily. PS, he writes, I also recently played Another World, which you covered back in March. Wow, that game was brutally, unforgivingly hard. I died so many times. Thanks for the podcast and sharing your love and knowledge of all these great games. Well, thank you, Alima, And, um, yeah, you know, for Gabriel Knight, like I said, I think it's kind of like he's an interesting character. And, you know, the fact that, I mean, the fact that 20th Anniversary Edition came out just recently, which uh, I still need to talk about very strongly, (laughs) and, um... You know, the fact that people still talk about it, listen to the music, interview Jane Jensen about it, even without the 20th Anniversary Edition, does really speak to how well-crafted a game experience it is. And, um, you know, as for your observations on uh, on the Laura Bow games, thanks for that. You know, I, I only played these now for this show, and this is definitely—again, these are one of those games, or at least uh, the Dagger of Amun-Ra, for some reason the Colonel's Bequest I'd never heard much about, but I always knew that the Dagger of Amun-Ra existed— And I kind of thought it was more of like an Indiana Jones type game. Like, oh, we need to chase after the dagger of Amun-Ra and whatever, but not quite the case. So uh, I'm also glad that I got to cover these games and and play through them. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll go back and even give them uh, a little bit more time than I did just in prep for this show. Next, we have a message from Patrick. And Patrick writes, hey, Joe, so glad you decided to cover the Laura Bow games on the podcast. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about them. For me, The Colonel's Bequest was the best of the bunch. I played that game a ton. The sequels were interesting, but uh, didn't have the same charm the original had, in my opinion. What stands out for me the most, when I remember playing The Colonel's Bequest, is the way they changed up the adventure game formula. This wasn't a sprawling galactic quest or a high fantasy saga. This was a self-contained set with uh, a clear goal of solving a murder. Instead of progressing through the game via locations, you proceeded by time. I could still hear the sound of the clock when the hour would change. You knew that more people were going to die as time went on, and uh, in the time-honored tradition of CR Adventure games, it may be you. On a side note, I always enjoyed the aspect of danger in CR games, and this game really took that aspect to heart. I also recall the Colonel's bequest made you really pay attention to conversations with the various characters, so much that it came with a notebook and a pencil in the box, Like any good murder mystery, the characters all had colorful personalities and backstories. There were rivalries and backstabbing galore, as it seemed everyone was a plausible suspect, even the late Colonel's pet parrot. You had to think about what they were telling you, consider their motives, and piece things together. Of course, if you weren't sure someone was telling the truth, one of the most entertaining parts of the game was accessing the secret alcove between the walls to watch the characters interact through the eyes of the paintings. From spats to affairs, this fly-on-the-wall information was key to your efforts to solve the case. From a technical perspective, this was one of the last Sierra games to use the parser interface, which I always preferred to point and click. The graphics and music were excellent and gave the game uh, so much atmosphere. Anyway, looking forward to the podcast, I'm also wondering where you can find a legal copy of the game. Ironically, I still have my five and a quarter inch discs, but no way to play the game anymore. Keep the great work g- Keep up the great work, Joe, and thanks again, Patrick. Well, thank you, Patrick. And yeah, unfortunately, like I said, from a, a digital download perspective, you you can't uh, get the game legally anywhere, as far as I can tell. But uh, it is in those anthologies, so if you pop over to eBay, then uh, you know you can probably find those anthologies on CD, and uh, you know using DOSBox and and whatever, you can probably get those guys running. So thanks for that email. Imagine yourself strolling the streets of Coruscant, leading a squadron of elite X-Wing pilots, going toe-to-toe with the Dark Lord of the Sith. You can. All you have to do is crack open a book and listen to the Star Wars Stacks podcast and book club. Each month, your hosts Joe, Chris, and Jen take you on a guided tour of the expanded universe. The hosts begin the reviews with a non spoiler synopsis and analysis to help you decide whether it's worth a read before sounding a spoiler alert and delving into the story in great detail. Subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Find the Star Wars Stacks on Facebook, Twitter, Goodreads, and swstackshow.com, the Star Wars Stacks Podcast and Book Club. It's fun, it's immersive. It's Star Wars. Okay, so, do the Lorabo mysteries hold up today? Well, the two games in the series are very different from each other, so I'm going to treat them separately. So first, we have the Colonel's Bequest. Does it hold up? Yes, absolutely. Now, this game came at the tail end of, of EGA, if you will, and uh, I really feel like the graphics look great. You know, I was immediately impressed by them. Also, I uh, I love the game's setting, and, uh, you know, while the characters are, are definitely one-dimensional, that doesn't really hurt in a classic murder mystery story like this. You know, I love the use of these common tropes. The music was wonderful, and the game, well, not incredibly fast-paced, is really incredibly unique. I don't think I've played many games like it. As for The Dagger of Amon-Ra, this is a good game that tells an interesting story. Um, is it as groundbreaking as Colonel's Bequest? No, no, it's not. But um, it is a very good Sierra adventure game set in a cool time period. So if you're a fan of Sierra Adventures, I, I would give it a go. So if you can only play one, play Colonel's Bequest. If you can play both, hey, do it.
1: You are listening to the Upper Podcast.
0: So that's that. Thanks to everyone for writing and doing everything you do. It's always incredibly appreciated. So since we reached the $50 per episode Patreon goal, uh, within the next two weeks, I'll be putting out the November 2014 news roll-up show. Uh, Even as of right now, I've got quite a bit of stuff to talk about in that. Uh, However for the next actual UMB cast, which will still be you know, out on the same schedule that I normally put out the real shows out, uh, we'll be diving underwater with silent service. So as always, you can send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. I love it when you guys send me stuff. I can read it on the show, play it on the show. I love voicemails, send voicemails. Uh, thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find him over at rickmoyer.com. Uh, don't forget... If you enjoy the show, you can come become my boss over at patreon.com slash UMBCast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash UMBCast. If you find some value from the podcast, please consider joining my 13 current patrons in donating a buck or two per show to help me with costs and hit the next goal of quarterly group discussion episodes. That sounds really cool. Every couple of months, get together a bunch of us, have a chat about whatever we want to have a chat about. I think they'll be pretty fun. You can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. You can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. You can follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. Uh, You can also find the show on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast where I put up videos of my game research sessions, all kinds of stuff like that. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, and that's that. And we will see you next time for silent service here in the upper memory block battle control terminated
1: you've been listening to the
0: upper memory block podcasts with joe mastriani for more information on the podcast visit umbcast.com that's umbcast.com Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.